0: Just a note to let you know this episode contains topics that some may find triggering. If you need support, please head to the show notes where you can find a range of mental health support contacts for both Australia and worldwide. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. I hope you've all been keeping really well. I myself have just come back from a seven-day detox program, but it's not the kind of detox that you're probably thinking about. No, I went to a health retreat with my mum up in Queensland. So that is in the northeast of Australia. And we were in the Gold Coast hinterland at a health retreat called Gwingana. And we opted to do a seven day detox program, which essentially meant no caffeine, lots of beautiful Uh, vegetarian food, uh, and also, uh, more importantly, probably a detox from the outside world. You know, I'm a really firm believer, uh, as somebody who used to spend their life keeping as busy as possible so that I didn't have to stop and really take in what was going on around me, I would use busyness almost like this superpower. Um, And the the faster I ran and the more I did and the more success and achievement I had, I truly believed that that would, you know, I'd be able to run away from my problems or my demons or my reality. Um, But since getting into recovery, it's really become apparent to me that Nobody can outrun that. There always comes a point where if you keep pushing things under the rug, eventually they'll bubble up to the surface and and you'll have to face them. And now that I'm in recovery, I try not to put things under the rug. I try to really deal with things as they come up in a functional, healthy manner. So, Taking this time just to pause and to reflect was really important for me. It's been an extremely busy year. I haven't taken a break this year up until now with launching the podcast and building the business and I really noticed it. I was starting to come out of a very long, dreary Melbourne winter and I knew that I just needed to take that time to stop and reflect and that's exactly what I did. And It gave me some time to think about what's been going on for me and I was able to spend a lot of quiet time in meditation and contemplation around a topic that has been coming up for me for the best part of this year really Uh, and that has been this idea of letting go of control as a recovering alcoholic and a perfectionist. it is Control is something that I have used throughout my whole life and it's been control over people, places and things. And I very much relate to the description of the alcoholic as somebody who needs to control life to be okay. And it's this idea that if everybody around me does as I need them to do, then everything will be okay. But if somebody goes against the grain or does something that's not to my liking, then it can really throw me off beam. Now, I've certainly gotten better at this in recovery, but it is something that I still find challenging particularly when it comes to relationships. And that can be with family, with friends, my intimate relationship. It can come up in all sorts of places. And so I used this opportunity while I was away to really take some deep contemplation around why I was so attached to the outcome or the need for a particular relationship to look a certain way. To let go of this desire to control is not easy because it requires a complete faith in something greater than myself. And for me, that's a higher power. For other people, it can be God. Uh, For other people, it can be nature. But it's this real letting going, just having complete faith and patience that everything will work out and be as exactly as it needs to be. Now, when I'm running well and I'm in fit spiritual condition, I'm able to hand it over quite easily, but I do often find that I will, unbeknownst to me, start to take my will back uh, and before too long, I'll start to be all wound up again and, and I'll be in a lot of discomfort. So what I've been focusing on in my meditation and my prayer is just to ask for the willingness to be able to let go of this stuff, particularly the stuff that gets under my skin and eats away at me, you know, whether these are resentments or fears popping up, I'm just asking my higher power to shift that for me so that I can keep doing what I need to do to be my best self. And As with most things, I certainly don't get it perfect, but as long as I'm doing my best to try, then I can start to see that shift, that shift in my mental state and just my baseline of being content and being at ease with myself. And as I mentioned, you know, I have the tools that enable me to do this. One of those is meditation. Another one is journaling. And then of course, for me, the practice of yoga is really powerful in helping me to take this stuff that does create that discomfort or that dis-ease and I take that onto the mat and I'm able to use the physical practice of yoga to, to move through that in a spiritual way as well. And on the topic of yoga, this brings me to introducing our guest for today. Nat Commons is a yoga teacher and mentor who I had the absolute joy of meeting earlier on in my recovery journey. I truly believe that in life you're guided towards certain people, and for me, Nat is one of those special humans. Nat and I met as she was one of my teachers for my own 200 hour teacher training for yoga, and she's continued guiding me through my practice ever since. Now, Nat has an incredible story of recovery. And I'm truly honoured that she's agreed to come onto the podcast to share her story with us. Nat, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you feeling?
1: I'm very honoured to be here and to be able to share this with you. And thank you for a beautiful introduction.
0: Oh, that's my (laughs) pleasure. All true words, I must say. Tell me, when I asked you if you would come on the show, what went through your head?
1: So when you asked me, there was two things that went through my head. First was massive resistance. So there was the resistance of, ooh, do I want to share and be that vulnerable? Uh, And the second was I have to do this, one, because of how I teach, and I teach from a place of embodiment and sharing and vulnerability. So I'd also, funnily enough, had a conversation with my own therapist prior to seeing, having that conversation with you about coming on, and we'd spoken about... What does reclaiming or stepping into your personal power look like? What does that mean? And so we had this discussion because my relationship with power has been a little bit skewed from past experiences, which I'm sure we'll go into later. Mm. But we talked about power being the courage to step into vulnerability Mm. and to actually be able to have a voice and to speak freely and fiercely and to be able to own who you are because if you can't own your own truth how are you going to meet the truth of another person
0: oh my gosh
1: so when you said it i was like oh i have to do this because this is part of me reclaiming my voice but also reclaiming my own power
0: I'm already so excited for what we're going (laughs) to talk about today. Everything you said, I just couldn't agree with more. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of the top of the show, I'm so honored to have you here. And already in the very brief time that we've been in each other's lives, you've taught me so much. So I'm really excited for you to share your wisdom with everyone here today. Now, Nat. We kick off our guest episodes by asking the guest to show a photo from a time in their life where their insides didn't match their outsides. So it would be from a time in your life where perhaps you were presenting one version of yourself to the world, but the reality was that you were dealing with your own internal struggles. So we've got the photo here that you've brought in today. Can you describe for our listeners, obviously this is an audio medium, (laughs) Can you describe for our listeners what the photo is and what I'm looking at here?
1: So in this photo, we have a picture of myself being held up by two beautiful women, uh, both who were my athletes at the time. So we were at the World Championships in Orlando, Florida in 2014. So the girls had just competed. They were the first All girl level six, which is now level seven technically, in cheerleading Mm -hmm. for my first level six team, sorry, from Australia to ever compete. So I was coaching them through that journey and got them there, which was a huge thing. Massive. Um, Massive. And so the picture is me, like, looking like I'm celebrating, and the girls are picking me up as their coach of this thing that they've achieved that there was like this life goal that they had just been able to tick off and Mm. that a lot of people dream of that don't get to do. So that's what the image is. There's
0: a big smile on your face and, and the girls look elated as well. But what was actually going on for you on the inside?
1: So at that point, I was struggling with depression. I was on antidepressants. I was just trying to keep my head above water. So I have a tendency towards perfectionism and people-pleasing. So there was a lot of bars that I had to try and reach in order to get to the World Championships. There was a lot of expectations. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of eyes on me and a lot of people relying on me. And that was difficult. And not just having a team going to the World Championships, I had a whole club that I was looking after and, had, and a teaching staff and co-owners and everything else that I was doing, I had that as well, but then financially the business wasn't doing so well. Mm. So I had another job on top of that. So I was working in an office just to be able to buy myself food and to pay for all my bills and do all the other rest of it. So there was this massive struggle to have this face of being pulled together, mm. being at the top of my field And then meeting the expectations of everybody else. So I wasn't in a very good headspace Mm. uh, mentally. So when I was by myself, I would just cry and just fall into this little heap. So, but when I was there.
0: You had to switch on.
1: I was radiant sunshine for everyone else. Yeah.
0: Mm. What did the depression looked like for you you shared that when you were alone there would be a lot of tears but can you describe for our listeners who maybe haven't experienced depression what it felt like in your body
1: so it felt like being pulled into this deep dark hole and I was so sucked in and it was this internal pulling like from my outside to my inside just being drawn into this abyss and there was no way to crawl out mm. There was no way to call out and there was nothing – there was no ropes. There was nothing to actually get myself out and there was no – there was no solution. I was just stuck there and there was no one that I could call out to to come and help or there was no resources. Mm. Like I just had obliterated them. Mm.
0: I want to circle back for a moment yeah. and then we'll come back to how you crawled out of that hole. Can we go back to your childhood for a moment? Mm-hmm. You said that you identified with being a perfectionist and a people pleaser. Was there any incident or experience that happened throughout your childhood that contributed to you developing those tendencies in adulthood?
1: So I feel like there was one big moment, which I'll come back to, but prior to that, there was little tiny things that kind of built towards the big thing that then made it Mm -hmm. bigger. So, I mean... If you speak to my mum, she'll say that I was a perfectionist from birth. Mm-hmm. She said that when I was young and, you know, most kids will pick up a pencil and they'll start drawing and scribbling and they'll give you their picture and it's just literally scribbling. You're like, oh, my gosh, that's so beautiful. She's like, I would not pick up a pencil. I would not pick up a texter. I would not pick mm-hmm. up a crayon. I wouldn't touch it until the first time that they did. And she's like, you drew a full person, five fingers, five toes, all the uh, eyes, nose, mouth is that was the first thing I ever drew was a full person because I needed to have it right. And so I didn't pick up a pen or do anything until I knew that I could do it right.
0: And that's one of those characteristics of a perfectionist, isn't it, that they won't start in fear of not being able to get it perfect.
1: There's the procrastination. Mm. So that's a really interesting thing. I don't remember that, but that's what I've been told. Um, And then just other little things just with primary school of this girls you know young girls and exclusion and bullying and part of the group and who's the cool kid and all the rest of it I just wanted to belong and fit in so there was this how do I please the people so that I am accepted so that I do belong and how do I change myself or adapt like a chameleon Mm. to fit in that way so that was my school that I went to in primary school was really small Mm. so it got if you were the excluded person or the person who was out that day you had no one because everyone else was too scared to be on your side Mm. that they would be the one who was ostracized type thing Mm. so that was kind of some little elements in my um childhood and also just things like little jokes from my dad Mm -hmm. he would say um You know, if I got 99%, what happened to the other 1%? Mm. It wouldn't be well done. It was what happened to that other 1%, which I can as an adult go, that was a joke. Mm. But as a kid, I was like, I got 99%. You failed. I failed. You know, so it's that kind of thing. Mm.
0: So. what was it like do you have any siblings what was it like growing up did you have many friends you mentioned that need to want to belong but how did you feel on the inside at that time
1: um so siblings I have three I have an older sister and then I have two younger brothers um so my sister's two years older than me and my brother under me is two years younger than me and then I've got one that's seven years younger than, than me again mm. um I just never felt like I belonged or fit in I always felt that I was a little bit different, um, yeah, even with my siblings, they were into sci-fi they were into Star Wars and sitting and moving. I wanted to be in trees and climbing and you know in the playground and outside and running around and doing all that type of thing. I didn't quite fit in with the that dynamic. Mm. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, and it would be really difficult to not feel if you've got multiple siblings and they all they all have similarities, and you you feel like the black sheep. I know I often mm. felt like that as well. That can be a really lonely place.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And so you mentioned there were these small things throughout your younger years that sort of contributed to this perfectionism, mm. but then you experienced. a a major trauma in your life didn't you
1: yes so at 14 my dad committed suicide he jumped off the westgate bridge Mm. um which was a big shock to everyone Mm. um which there was no note there was no anything prior to so there was nothing there were no warning signs that I mean I saw that my mum saw that my family saw it. No one saw it coming. Yeah. So at that time, I remember I remember being dropped off at school and it was a school carnival and he was like, go win. Oh like gosh. that was one of the last things that was said was go and win. Mm. And you're like, okay, cool. So I did really well. I won some stuff. My sister won some stuff. I came and then he wasn't there to be able to be like, well done. Yeah. Like even winning wasn't enough if that made sense at that time um but then we have you you know there's the police all come and everyone else is coming in and going you know trying to help and what am i trying to say so the morning that we found out was very early in the morning the police came and then we had all these people at the house coming over family mum's friends just so overwhelming Mm. i just went into shutdown mode and just numbed out but then you'd have people come and say oh just so you know it's not your fault Mm -mm. like i didn't that hadn't even occurred to me that it was Mm. could have been my fault so then it was this how is it
0: a seed was planted a
1: seed was planted even though they put it they were saying it and trying to be in a nice way Mm. i just heard your fault
0: Mm.
1: because your your brain doesn't distinguish between the knots and the Mm the yeses and the nos it's just what is the topic that's what you're going to think about and ruminate on so it's like why wasn't i enough Mm. what did i do what's wrong with me why am i broken why am i not capable enough Mm. what why aren't i enough to live for Mm. so then there was this constant need to prove myself to prove that i was enough or at least to try and get validation Mm. so then you go through life trying to go what does everyone need? What does everyone want? How can I please them mm. and meet the expectations? And how can, I be, how can I be perfect? How can I prove that I'm not broken? Mm. And how can I prove that to someone who doesn't exist? Because that's who I'm trying to prove it to. Because mm. even if I did reach perfection, which is impossible, mm-hmm. it wouldn't actually be validated or acknowledged by the person that I want it from. So it was it's, it was a really big um, moment in time, which then re- was reinforced by all those other childhood things. Mm. It was like, okay, all these other little bits and pieces. Oh, now it all makes sense. I'm not good enough. Yeah, you know,
0: it's like those limiting core beliefs that you know I have experienced as being false beliefs. For you in that time, were almost validated.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was like a full validation. So then I was like. But I don't want to be that person. So I'm just going to prove that I'm exceptional. Mm. I'm going to prove that you're wrong. Mm. But that meant that I did nothing for me. Everything was to try and do what I expected, other people expected of me. Mm. So it was this really interesting way of moving through life.
0: Was your response and that, you know, that, drive into perfectionism was that the similar response that your siblings had or do you feel like just as you had growing up been a little bit different did you respond differently to the trauma that you all experienced
1: I think we all experienced it very differently Mm. um so we we didn't talk about it Mm. it was a bit of a taboo subject um and not because anyone said it was taboo, just nobody ever spoke about it because everyone made it taboo. Mm. Basically everyone's, you know, suicide back then wasn't spoken about as much as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that was stigmatised. Mm. So it didn't really get talked about or we were all walking on eggshells because we didn't want to upset anyone else. Mm. So when... With my sister, I'm not really sure how she took it. Mm. Um, and I went into full perfectionism mode. My brother underneath me, um, so the one who's seven years younger than me, he actually messaged me the other day and he's like, question for you. How do you, you study so well? Because I'm a, I'm a good study. I'm a good student. I'll sit there and I'll study. I'll study more than I actually should mm. do. Um, he's like, how do you do it? Because I can't get motivated. And I was just like, because I'm a perfectionist, I'm trying to please and get validation. Yeah. And I said it, I said it in a joking way, but also in a serious way. Oh, uh, serious way. Uh, and then he said, Oh, I have the same things. I just go the opposite way. Yeah. Okay. So, he was like, I have those same. I'm not enough. I'm not capable. Da da da. But instead of going into the perfectionism and pleasing and the doing and the proving and everything else, he goes Mm. into, I'm not going to do, I'm going to procrastinate, I'm going to step away, I'm not going to start Mm. because I don't want to fail, because I don't want it to be proven that I'm not good enough. That's
0: exactly right.
1: So that's what he does.
0: And I wonder... Does he tip into rebellion as well? Because they say there's this model of developmental immaturity that die, my psychotherapist and I talk about. It's on a recent episode actually. And they're on the model they talk about perfectionism and you can you can dial into being too perfect or you can then go into this almost like anti perfection, which can be, yeah, that mm-hmm. not only just that paralysis or that procrastination, but almost a rebellion.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Oh, it's so interesting, isn't it?
1: The human mind. Mm, So so, complex. So simple but so complex. That's exactly
0: right. I can really relate as well, you know, when you were talking about um, even though there's quite a number of years in between your experience and when I myself experienced um, someone really close to me dying from suicide is that people around you just don't know what to say.
1: No, they don't. Yeah,
0: and I don't know how you felt, but for me, like I wanted people to reach out, Mm -hmm. but they don't. No, Um, they don't. And I I don't think they mean (laughs) it as they don't care, but it's almost like too awkward or something. Like they don't know what to say maybe.
1: Yeah, people don't know how to respond or what to say and I don't think that there is anything to be said, but just to be able to sit with someone who's going through that, I think is important. Like mm. just l- just sit in silence and if they have something that they want to say, be there to hear them say it or be like, I'm just here to hold your hand. Yeah. It's not necessarily, you're not trying to fix anything because you can't fix it. And there's nothing to, pr- like there's nothing that you can, there is nothing you can say mm. because what's been done is done. But it's just having people there. Because that's how we heal is with other people.
0: It's so true. So if you could say anything about that time and perhaps what you needed more of, it would have just been having people around that presence of knowing that they were there but they didn't need to actually say anything at all.
1: Yeah, and not avoid it.
0: Don't pretend like it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Don't pretend like it didn't happen but don't try and fix the situation and try to i think there's a lot to be said about um the suppressing of all the emotions like Mm. don't cry or you know telling people what their emotions to be like you know don't cry be strong be strong you need to be strong for your mother Mm. you need to do this for your family like those type of things it's it's reinforcing that oh I have to I have to step up I have to be this yeah it's hard to articulate but I think in those head spaces whatever you say people can like for myself anyone could have said anything I probably would have flipped it to my own narrative that was reinforced Mm. so I just needed people to let me feel yeah and to be there to let me feel it yeah. And hold me in that.
0: Mm. I'm so sorry you had to go through that experience. It's, yeah. I imagine even still today that's would be.
1: Oh, it's so multifaceted. Mm. You, know, like you think you deal with something and you're like, oh, okay, we're back here again. Mm. But, um, yeah, it was a really interesting period of my life. Mm. And, you know, you talk about these things and, of course, I don't wish my dad had done that but my life would be very different if he hadn't mm. so I don't know what my life would have I wouldn't be me mm. my life would be very different so That's exactly right you know everything has brought me to this moment
0: mm. I completely understand what you mean when you say that mm. I feel the same and so can we talk a little bit more then about what your coping mechanisms were yep. that you started to apply. I'm going to imagine that part of your perfectionism is what led you to be in the world championships <laughs> of a highly competitive sport. <laughs> but perhaps you can take us on that journey now. So um how did that start to play out in different areas within your life?
1: Uh the first place was schooling because that's where I spent so much of my time. Uh, so wasn't good enough, so therefore one must get 100%. 100%. (laughs) So academically I would go to school, and so I was 14 at the time, so I was year 9, so I was heading towards VCE, pre-VCE, year 10, and then everything else. So I really threw myself into my study Mm. and to make sure that that was 10 out of 10. But then initially, I would go drinking a lot with my friends on the weekends. I'd study really hard during the week, mm. and I'd write myself off on the weekend to the point of being very ill, mm. pretty much every time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that, which was also kind of standard behavior as well for All that your friends age. Were doing All friends it. were doing it. Mm-hmm. Not everyone was puking their guts up every time, in but. You know, that was my, I'll study really hard, but then I have to have a release and do this. Um, But then that taught me how to vomit, (laughs) Mm. which then resulted in a um, bulimia because I was like, oh, I know how to do this now. Mm. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's there's a way I need to look and I need to have an appearance, and that's part of being this little perfect mould. So I had started not eating very much but then if I did eat anything more than what I had deemed adequate mm. then I would purge, purge and I had a dance teacher at the time who taught me all the different ways that you can purge and all the ways yeah. that you can like l- gave me instructions on what to do
0: my god I'm horrified for um, you
1: like the type of food you can eat and which beforehand and oh. that will be helpful and you know laxatives and mm. drink pepsi max because the bubbles will make you feel feel fuller and that type of thing so that was like okay here's my tool here's my toolkit mm. here's my coping mechanism literally handed to me on a plate and so I then had this academia focus plus an eating disorder that was starting. Mm. Um, but then I was also, all of a sudden, I was getting better at my dancing. And so dancing also has an aesthetic that you need to please, so that reinforced. Um, but then I was like dancing all the time. Mm. And so then my dancing became my release, my emotional release as well. So then I started over-exercising as well. Mm. So I was exercising 20, 25 hours a week. Wow. And then not eating very much. Mm. And then just still completely numb, not realising what I was doing Mm. at the time. And so then there was this constant push of excellence in my dance and then in my academia as well. So there was just this yeah constant circle but then my academia would f- fall down mm. because i was dancing too much and then i was not eating enough and so then i was starting to prove to myself that i'm not good enough mm. i can't get through my dance classes properly my grades aren't as good like what's happening you so then that was just and then that would reinforce it all right so now I need to get skinnier now I need to get mm. smarter now I need to go and do this and I need to perform more and I need to get to professional standard and I need to do all the rest of it
0: was there anything or anyone throughout that time that perhaps tried to tap you on the shoulder or check in and see if everything was okay or was the facade that you were presenting just so well polished that nobody knew
1: Um, I had a pretty good facade Mm. um, which got me to a certain point but then at that certain point my dance teacher at the time which is a different dance teacher she actually came to my house and she knocked on my door and she said I need to talk to you and she banned me from classes. Wow. She's like, you, you couldn't make it through the dance class. It was a one-hour dance class and you had to sit down and rest because you didn't have enough energy to make it through class. You are not allowed to come back to class until you put weight on.
0: Wow. What did you think at that time?
1: I was really angry. I bet you were. <laughs> I was really angry. Um, but it did make me eat again yeah. for a little while. Mm-hmm. So it was – I had to reassess what I was doing – And so then she let me come back and start dancing and do all the things and, you know, reassessed and then just went straight back to old patterns again. Mm.
0: And how did the dancing then turn into cheer? How did this all come about?
1: Yep, so my sister was a cheerleader and she'd been trying to get me to come and join the team for ages. You'll love it, you'll love it. And I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to be a cheerleader had the stereotype of rah, rah, not my thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I want to be a professional. I'm a dancer. I'm a dancer. <laughs> I, you know. Anyway, they had someone who was injured and she's like, can you just fill in for this comp? Come for a couple, six weeks and then you're done. So I was like, fine, I'll come and help out. Anyway, I came for six weeks and the moment I walked in the door, two people that I didn't even know were like, hi you must be Nat and they just came and they get, sat me down like how are you tell us like and all of a sudden I had this feeling of belonging somewhere mm. for like the first time in my life I was like oh and people wanted me there because I was helping Because mm. I needed someone mm. but there was this overwhelming feeling of oh I belong somewhere and then in that first session they're like oh we're going out for coffee afterwards do you want to come and I was like yes yes i do Mm. and so then i did the competition six weeks later and my sister was like are you leaving i was like can i stay (laughs) and so there wasn't any of the perfectionism in that moment i was just accepted and felt like i belonged somewhere yeah and it was fun and i made these really beautiful friends and you know our team if you watch some videos back we're like oh wow How do I not die? I'm not sure. I'm just (laughs) not quite sure what was happening and I was still dancing. But then all of a sudden, like once you start doing things recreational and fun, Mm. well, once I start doing things recreational and fun, I then want to make them perfect. Mm. I then want to be the best. I want to be able to prove myself. So then I got very competitive with myself, but also within my teammates, so as much as it was healthy competition of any like any competition within teammates it was oh they've done that that challenges me and pushes me i want them to be better because that will make me be better Mm -hmm. and then by then getting better again then i will chase them and so there's this needing to keep keep up with everyone so i was Mm -hmm. like okay cool and then eventually that team kind of disintegrated a little bit uh but I got asked to compete at the world championships. So, but that was actually for dance, the first time. Okay. So, I competed with my team. And I was competing in dance and in cheerleading, and then uh, the the dance cheer dance type style with pom poms, pom, which is a little bit like jazz but more drill, um, type movements. But there was – Team Australia was going to the World Championships and they one of their athletes couldn't go or there was a whole situation. But they called me and said, we have two weeks till we leave to America. We've watched all the Australian videos and we've picked one person that we want to take and we want you to come. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. And with a conversation with my mum going, um – I had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to the world championships Mm. and Dad always said he wanted one of his kids to get to the Olympics. This is kind of the Olympics of the sport I do, Um, look validation. Um, She was like, all right, I'll help you this time, but this is just a once-off thing and you can pay me back. Great. So I had two weeks to prep myself for this crazy routine that I'd never done to get to the world standard, one of the most stressful things (laughs) of my life. Mm. Um, Got there. Competed. It was a not a great experience for me because it was so stressful yeah. and so overwhelming, um, and I didn't do particularly well, in my opinion. So I once again had proven that I wasn't.
0: Yeah. So it didn't matter that you were at the world championships. No. It was that you didn't do as well as you thought you should have done. Yes. Mm.
1: You know, when people train for it for a whole year with their team, I had two weeks and. Yeah. I just But that doesn't matter doesn't when you've got those
0: unrealistic expectations.
1: So then I went to the world championships the next year, but for cheerleading because I ended up in a cheerleading team that was going randomly and they're like, do you want to to the world championships? I was like, okay, cool. So then that was another, that was a lot, that was intense. Mm. But then I was one of the girls who got the top, of the pyra- like of the pyramids and the, some of the stunts, but also on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Like I was a base as well. So I wanted to be the girl on the top because that's the business card. Mm-hmm. That's the person everyone's looking at and that's the person who sells the show. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that validation. I wanted to be that person. But you have to be tiny.
0: Mm-hmm. Like so that's fueling the eating fuelling. disorder.
1: So that was then fueling the eating disorder. And I was one of the bigger girls in terms of the flyers – I was at the top so then I had this fuel Then I still had to be at the world I still had to be um for this fuel to be perfect and be at the top and to fuel my eating disorder but then I also had this need to be fit enough and to be strong enough because I still had to be at a base and hold people in the air mm. so had this conflict mm and it was just...
0: Literally being pulled in two directions.
1: Yeah. So then I was just like, oh, well, I can just work out more and get stronger. <laughs> mm. And you think about it, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense by not eating enough and then working out more. Yeah. You know, I was just burning myself into, like, into the ground. That was 2012. That was two years before the photo that we spoke about earlier. Mm. But... I was also doing my master's at the time.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> mm. Of course you were. Yeah. What, <laughs> <laughs> what was your master's in?
1: Uh, so I was doing a master's of teaching mm. in uh, physical education and psychology and student well-being. Mm-hmm. What happened there? Uh, that was a lot. Yeah. So I was doing that full-time uh, and then I was training 20-something hours a week mm preparation for the world champs and then i was also teaching because i needed to have an income so i was doing a lot um and basically the world championships were in april Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then i went straight from the world championships flew back from america jet lagged and then went straight into placement for my masters uh and i did my three-week placement just boom 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 and then i crashed and that's when i went into that hole
0: is that where the depression started
1: that's when i got the uh, i cuz i just I'd, I'd burnt out every resource i had mm. i'd known i was malnourished i was physically depleted i had no hormones i'd gone into premenopause oh, wow um and i was just unstable emotionally like just all of a sudden, as soon as placement finished, I just cried every day. Mm. Just just cried. And I was just like, I can't. And I'd go to study and I'd go to sit and I would just fall into a puddle on the ground. Mm. And I remember my mum coming in one day and she just saw me on the floor and she's like, I think it's time that you go to the doctor. Mm. Like, I think you need to go and go to the doctor. Um, and so I went to the doctor and they were like, antidepressants. And I was like, no. <laughs> Mm. no because i didn't want the stigmatism mm. and i also didn't want to be my father mm. um because he and not he at the funeral after the speeches and an answer was finished one of the adults came up to me and said oh you're so much like your father okay which they just heard his speeches from you know all the positive and everything and i was but me i'm going i didn't hear any of the speeches i was just going why aren't you crying Because I was so numb, I was like, you should be crying, you should be crying. Mm. So I missed the speeches. So all I heard in that comment was, you're just like your father. Mm. You're going to probably kill yourself or you'll abandon your family Mm. or, you know. So I didn't want, when she said, do you want to go on antidepressants? I was like, no, because I don't want to be that person. Oh my gosh. And I don't want the stigmatism of it. Can't let anyone know that. Mm. So I didn't. But then I just fell into a deeper, darker hole because I had no resources and eventually I went and spoke to the person at university, the Masters, because I wasn't coping. I was like, I can't do this. And she looked at me. She one look at me and she said, I think you need to go on antidepressant. This was just a staff member and I didn't even say anything about any of it, any of the other stuff. I just said I wasn't coping with the work. Mm. And then she said, you're, do you feel like you're in a deep, dark hole? And I was like, yes. She's like, do you feel like you can crawl out? And I was like, no. She's like, just go and have a chat with someone. Mm. I think you should. So then after that conversation, she kind of made it okay. Like she made it feel like it was okay for me to do. Mm. They didn't tell anyone. Yeah. Very hush-hush that I was even on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they helped. they helped me to crawl out of the dark hole. I was just plateaued like emotionally I didn't have any lows but I didn't have any highs either yeah so you know I was teaching cheer I was coaching cheerleading and I had teams like I had teams while I was competing and so I'd be turning up and they'd compete and they'd do so well and everyone would be jumping up and screaming and clapping and I'd be like jump up and scream and clap just so that you look like you're excited that they did well because you know you they did well and you know that you should be excited for them. But you're not feeling it. But I'm not feeling it because I was just on these antidepressants that were just completely numbing me out.
0: Mm. Oh, my gosh. It's just I'm having a real moment here because I just relate so, so much to what you spoke about then with the the fear of my mum suffers um, from mental health and has been medicated for a number of years um, on antidepressants and I remember when I first started experiencing really severe anxiety and depression and how adamant I was that I wouldn't turn out, you know, in air quotes like my mum. Now I have a beautiful relationship with my mum and she's an incredible woman but I had such a stigma around needing you know, something that I now, in hindsight, you know, antidepressants worked really, really well for me for the time that I needed to be on yeah. them and they, they probably saved my life. Mm. But we do have this stigma around needing medication, yeah. you know, which is st- just crazy. Yeah. And so, Nat, when I talk to people that come and sit with me about their recovery from addiction – we often talk about there being a rock bottom moment, which is sort of the moment that, you know, it was the, it's the dark moment, but it's mm. also the moment where things shift and, you know, recovery stems from. It's like the lotus, you know, growing in the mud. Yeah. So did you have a rock bottom moment in your recovery from this eating disorder and this perfectionism?
1: I feel like I've had a few. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely hasn't been a linear experience um I think the first one was I got to a point with my business where they were doing my athletes were doing so well and I loved them so much and i would created this beautiful family and this community but it was still a business and
0: Just for a minute, let's go back. What was the business, just so our listeners can understand? So
1: I ran a cheerleading and dance studio. Got it. So I also opened in 2012 a cheerleading and dance studio Mm. while doing my master's and competing. Mm. (laughs) Doing the rest of Mm -hmm. it. So, (laughs) (laughs) yep, Yep. can do all the things, apparently, which I can't do all the things, apparently. Absolutely cannot. Um, But that was also validating my capabilities and my enoughness of being able to do. But um, I did run that for six years. Mm -hmm. I had that studio. Um, And it was a beautiful, beautiful studio. I had wonderful staff and I had incredible athletes. And it was such a family and a home. And I cared so much about them. Um, and that was something that did make me feel something. I didn't have the highs of all the excitement and stuff, even though I knew I shouldn't, but the actual heart of it was my heart that went into that. And in that, and with my people pleasing, it was always to please my athletes and to please the parents and to please everyone, which meant it wasn't a very good business model to use Mm. for a business. So I financially didn't cope and didn't survive because, you know, people couldn't pay their fees and I'd be like, that's okay. Next time. Next time. <laughs> you just come and do it when when you can, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and then they'd go on a family holiday and you're like, wait a second. What <laughs> <laughs> Left
0: scratching your head.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and so... It got to a point where it was too much and I didn't have the support and the help that I needed from some people to be able to keep it going and to keep my sanity and I got to a point where I just broke and I had in the storeroom, I had um, a beautiful friend of mine. Um, We were so, 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 so close. I just love her to death. But um, we had in the back room pillow pets and we'd used to throw them <laughs> um when you broke down and there were quite a few times that i would just break down in the storeroom just a mess and then i'd go out and teach and be like completely fine and be like all right let's go it's time for classes you know mm. let's go um it's really that
0: epitome of Being behind a smile, isn't it? Having to switch on and yeah,
1: literally had a storeroom that I would go and throw pillow pets and scream and cry and then walk out and be like, "All right, everyone, welcome, ready to class. Let's Mm. go. Let's you know, pumped up music, all the rest of it." Um, and I just got to a point where I just sat on the floor and I was, again, so malnourished and (laughs) just, um depleted and didn't have the resources or the capacity to hold myself together and I just started crying and crying again and I was like, I'm back here. I'm back like I was off the antidepressants but then and I was like, I'm back here again. Mm. I thought I I thought I was stronger than this and I'm like and I, and I got to a point where I was just like, I just can't anymore. I can't. And it got to the end of that year and it got to Christmas and normally I would just keep classes going the whole way through, except like Public holidays, mm-hmm. um, but I closed the studio for the first time. Like I had, I closed for a week, <laughs> um, and in that one week, I was like, I need to go and do. I need to do something for myself. I need to go and do something for myself. I need to go and dance. Cause I wasn't doing anything anymore by that stage. I was just teaching yeah, and just then working. working. Mm. So I was working like eighty hours a week. Um, cause I wasn't studying anymore, so I had to pick up my workload. <laughs> um, but. i "I need to do something for myself so i went i need to do a dance class and then it was the christmas holidays so nothing was open so i ended up going to a bar class Mm. and then i found that and i was like oh my god i need this so i started doing that more and more but i used it as a punishment Mm. it was just to feel something so if i could make myself so sore and just really push really hard and be sore the next day and then go the next day on top of the soreness and build on that, I was Mm. feeling something. Um, And then there was a session that – it was a Saturday, and I went on the Saturday, and afterwards there was a yoga class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could get a bit of a stretch. (laughs) I'd love to have a bit of a stretch. So I – Went and did this yoga class, and the teacher, who is just one of my dearest friends still, um, she was like, We're going to do some yin, which, if you're not familiar with yin, it's um, long holds, quite restorative. You're in your own space for quite a long time. There's a lot of space to be silent and to go inward. And it's. um, So I went to this class, and I stopped for the first time in. I don't know 10 years I just stopped and it was so uncomfortable Mm. it was just so uncomfortable to one be still in my body to try and relax my body because that didn't feel safe but then to have so much stillness and I was like my mind just didn't stop and there were so many thoughts and I was it was so uncomfortable but at the end of it I was like I need that I just need that.
0: What do you mean by it didn't feel safe to stop and be in your own body?
1: So, the exercise, the working, the like, even the eating stuff—they were always of not being in my body, mm. because being in my body. Was felt like I had to acknowledge what was actually there. So I'd have to acknowledge the not good enough, the not capable, the um, the needing to like all the all the limiting beliefs, all those little things. I would have to actually sit in those and feel them
0: and the grief and
1: feel the grief and feel the anger because I've like I've had so many injuries. I had this conversation with my therapist as well, was just, they're like, what are you angry at? I'm not an angry person. They're like, everyone's an angry person. Like, look, look, look at your life. Like, mm. you go through your time, my timeline and they're like, you you must be angry. Like, look at what's happened from 14 in your 20s as well and all these things. They're like, you must be angry. And I was like, oh, no, not really. Mm. And they're like, oh, really? Because you've been injured a lot. Who do you reckon you're taking it out on? Mm like you've just had a shoulder reconstruction why did you need to have a shoulder reconstruction that you that you hurt your shoulder in 28 uh, in 2008 and you had it in 20 22 sorry mm. like you're punishing yourself you're taking your anger out on yourself because you're a people pleaser and you don't want to take it out on anyone else because you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable even if they've done the wrong thing mm. but um so the, those things stopped me from actually having to go in and acknowledge what has actually happened in my life. So to actually acknowledge that my dad committed suicide and that it made me feel inadequate, mm. not enough, not capable. It made me... I, it made to go into my body meant and I had to acknowledge the fact that I had been sexually abused by mm. a uni lecturer... ...and by a cheerleading international coach... Mm. ...and to actually be like, those things happened. Mm. But I never wanted to acknowledge it because that made it real. Yeah. And that made it true. And then it meant that also part of that going and going that made it true in my body's like oh, i have to feel this the grief the anger the rage all these things that are negative qualities of a human and aren't perfect mm. so i have to feel those things and then but then there's also the guilt of not speaking up of not having a voice of not saying that these things happened and then knowing that things happen to other people mm. It's the fact of not being there for other people when they needed me. It's it's that I went into such shutdown that I have to now acknowledge all these other thought patterns and things. So being my body felt so unsafe, yeah, because it was hard, mm. and it also meant it goes these things can happen, and if I acknowledge them, they're real, which means they can happen again.
0: Yeah, it's almost like that running from fear, and it sounds like. In that moment that you were in that yin class and everything stopping and everything becoming still was that first moment you let yourself almost be willing to face it for the first time.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So it was this moment of going, "Oh, I need, I need to actually make a change.
0: Time to look at this stuff.
1: It's time to look at this stuff. Like you've got the ability to do it now, mm. and you, I, I don't. And you're here because you don't want to do what you're doing." Mm. You can't do it anymore. And that's when I decided to close. So I ran the studio for one more year and then I closed the doors, which was so hard to do. Yeah, I and imagine. And the guilt that I felt of letting other people down and having to tell my staff. And I loved everyone so much. And the having to have the conversation with the parents and the athletes and all the tears and all the rest of it. Like, that was so painful. Like, 2018 was such a hard year for me. I re- reckon that was... The one of the three, the top three hardest years. Mm. But I needed to make that change because I needed to find out who I was. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't know who I was because everything I'd done was built on trying to prove myself to other people, mm. to what they wanted me to be and what they expected me to be. But not even that. It was what I expected that they expected of me. For sure. Because if I actually have a real conversation with them and sit down and like, oh, I just want to... I thought that's what you wanted or I wanted you to be happy. Like I set my own expectations of what their expectations were, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Oh, makes perfect sense. Yeah. I identify so much. And okay, let's fast forward then, Natty, because you're sitting here in front of me today as one of the people that I would argue are the most in tune with their authentic selves and the work you do not only on yourself but you share with other people – is such a far cry from the person that you've just described to me. Mm. So can you join the dots for us and tell our listeners how you came to this place that you're in now?
1: Um, I think I, from that yoga moment I continued my yoga journey mm. and once I stopped using physical movement as punishment, And used it to start to feel good in my body Mm. that made a shift and made me want to feel good in my body but also feel good in my mind Mm. Um, and so when i started moving with a sense of curiosity as to finding out who i am and what i want and what i like i was also able to have a dialogue with myself and go this is what i don't want and this is not what and this is what i want to change and shift and where i'm how i want to move but then i was able to have conversations with people when i started to reach out and actually talk to people that i trusted and were in a safe space all of a sudden i realized that i wasn't alone hmm. so all of a sudden i started this yoga practice and i felt safe in the space I was in, and I started having these conversations and I'd start crying on the yoga mat as you do sometimes and you're (laughs) like, oh, Mm -hmm. where did that come from? I don't know what that is. And then the teacher would check in or have a conversation and then you'd find these moments of, oh, I'm not the only person that feels like this. This Mm -hmm. isn't, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. I'm not some weird, whacked out, unfixable, broken person. Mm. I've just had some things happen in my life that I haven't actually experienced. So when I let myself actually have those conversations and tap into, oh, there's nothing wrong with me,
0: Mm.
1: it allowed me to then have more conversations and more connections with other people don't know if I'm articulating myself very well.
0: Yeah, you do. You know, for me, the recovery community and the yoga community, I believe, are very, very similar. Mm. And I, I've even shared with you before when I was doing my teacher training, a lot of the principles and philosophy behind yoga, I there are just so many similarities yeah. in recovery. But what do you think it is about the yoga community or the yoga space that facilitates and promotes such an openness and, a, and an authenticity within people that you really, I think, don't find in many other places?
1: I think because it's such a practice of self. Mm. It's a practice of self within a community. So it's this way of being able to go inward ...and go, how do I feel? How is my internal world going? Mm. Who am I? And how do I want to be? Mm. So that self-inquiry... Or svadhyaya, ...and our self-study... ...and... ...that permission to actually be you... ...regardless of... ...anger... Disappointment, excited, joyful, happy, elated, mm. grieving—every part of you is accepted. Mm. Even the parts of you that may be a little bit judgmental or have opinions—they're all accepted. But it's put almost on the table to go. Let's start observing that now. Mm. Let's witness the why behind it. Let's start to open our aperture and our, our of our pers- uh, perspective and our um, of who we thought we were and so as you start to do that in that self inquiry, it starts to open you up and then you have questions. Mm -hmm. So then it starts a dialogue with people that you're around, and so you start to have conversations either with your community, with the people that are next to you on your mat or in reception or the teacher or you go, oh, I'm experiencing these things. Why? Why does yoga make me feel like this? I need to do a teacher training. (laughs) (laughs) I need to know why and I also... This has impacted me in a way that I don't actually understand. But I know it's important and I know I need to share it. So you start to go inward. It starts to create these connections and this conversation and this dialogue with other people that is beyond surface layer because it's from a deep inward place of who am I? What is my authentic nature? How do I want to show up in the world? I don't want to put on masks anymore. I don't want to have armour on. I just wanna be me. So how do I find that? And that yeah, that's what led me to a teacher training. I think from just running so many teacher trainings now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what a lot of people is. They're like, I feel so good. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I need to know more about it or I wanna learn more about it because I need to share it. Whether that's as an actual teacher or whether it's just share it with my family or share it with my friends or it makes me want to be a better person. Mm. So I think that's what's different because it's such an inward experience and self inquiry without any expectations. It doesn't ask anything back of you.
0: Which is the antithesis of perfectionism, right? Yeah. It's almost like the antidote is to do this work and then you start to realise that all of those unrealistic expectations that you put on yourself, they don't, they're don't. they not real.
1: They're not real. Yeah. It's like, oh, they, that doesn't matter. Mm. Mm. And it also makes you go and look at, like, in that way of the expectations of the future, it's like, it's not about any of that. Like, if I get those things, great. If I don't, great. I'll go on a different adventure and I'll get something even more wonderful there. Mm. But it also takes you back to the past and go oh, that's my story. Mm. That doesn't define me. Mm. Like none of it actually matters. The lessons I've learned from it and take with me are really important, amazing. But the actual story of it, it's not me. Mm. It doesn't define me. So I get to create my own reality based on who I am from a true place instead of a place of having to prove and strive.
0: Yeah, it is. It's that non-striving, isn't it? And letting go, and again, just the similarities to recovery blow my mind. Um, but I also know that even from the group of um, the group of people that I was able to share my YTT experience with, and we had yourself and Amy and Nataraj take us through that incredible experience. Um, you know. The majority of people weren't in recovery, but they still had these um, moments of self-discovery and mm. realisation and shattering of false beliefs. And it was just such a profound moving experience. I, I know for me, I, I would recommend it to anyone, mm. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's such a powerful, it's so much more than just the physical movement. Oh, that whole experience.
1: It's its something you can't even put into words. Mm. Like you can't actually describe it besides you should do it. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: <laughs> so, so true, so true. Um, Nat, recently I'd love to ask you a question now about an Instagram post that you mm-hmm. put up recently where you were talking about your recovery from your shoulder reconstruction that you've just spoken about. Uh, but in it you spoke about, experiencing this dark night of the soul i would love for you to describe to our listeners what that looked like for you
1: so for me that was i got triggered last year pre-surgery so i got triggered and really activated in a way that i didn't actually at the time know why Mm -hmm. something happened it didn't even directly happen to me And my whole nervous system went into absolute meltdown. And then all of a sudden I was back at that place of I'm crying every day. And Mm. I cried every day for a month. Mm. Not knowing why it was so intense in my body. I was like, what is happening? Mm. Um, And then my nana had a stroke and basically they were like, she's going to die. Mm. Um, I mean, she was 99. She didn't want to make it to 90, so. <laughs> <laughs> solid effort. She did a solid effort. Um, and so they're like, you know, she's going to pass away. So it took her a week. I shouldn't say like that, but it was a week of that. And I'd go and visit and slowly watch her because they she wasn't eating. She, they weren't giving her fluids. It was just a matter of time, time and letting her organs shut down. Mm. So I watched that happen for a week. And the day she passed away, I actually started a bhakti training. Mm. So I was doing a bhakti yoga training with the beautiful Heidi trigger. Um, And the same day my uncle got diagnosed with prostate cancer. And then the next day someone within the cheer industry passed away of cancer. Oh, my gosh. So I had all of these triggers. I was already activated. Mm. And then I had these... Three things happen in two days, plus starting a back training, which is quite an intense but incredible experience. I do recommend that as well <laughs> um, for anyone interested. Uh, but I was again at a place where I didn't have any resources left. My stress levels had gone. I emotionally wasn't able – like my coping resources – had been depleted and i'd hit my threshold of stress level and i was just i just can't hold myself together i i, I have nothing to put a mask on anymore i don't have any ability to put on my guards i don't mm. have any like I, I, that takes effort to have that front and i just didn't mm. so in that training i fell apart a little bit but i felt safe in that space to fall apart that's part of the beautiful thing about these type
0: of what is a bhakti training for those listening
1: uh, so Bhakti is a beautiful, um, I don't even know how I can explain it to do it justice, but it's it's the heart. It's the heart. It's coming from a place of love and uh, faith and it's a devotional practice. So there's a lot of mantra and chanting and community and kirtan and mythology and how the different gods and goddesses have parts within us so the different attributes, the the shadow and the light and it's looking at those different stories and going how do I see those parts within me Mm -hmm. and how can I utilise those parts to be the best version of me Mm -hmm. Um, and how can I practice from my heart and always come from that place rather than be in my head all the time probably not the best description no you've but.
0: described that beautifully so i can imagine doing that sort of work you would be highly activated yes and so then you've got these three traumas one after the other yeah and your body's just gone i can't
1: yeah and it was already going i can't but it went completely i can't mm. so i just cried a lot um during that training but it also meant that because all of my guards went down um and also because of all the work i had done previously i'd done so much work on myself it was almost as if that break down, we'll say, was also this moment of you need this so that you now address this. So all of a mm. sudden all of these experiences that I had pushed under the rug started coming up. Mm. So the when I was in high school there was a party and there was a girl that was gang raped. Mm. And so I was in view... Mm. um at one point so that came up and I was like oh wow and then there was another one where I said this before like the sexual abuse mm. from one of the when I was doing my final year of my therapy part of the reason why I'm not a myotherapist um so that came up and then I had uh the cheer thing that I spoke about as was mentioned before as well that thing came up and so all of a sudden I'm sitting in this spiral of mm. this is too much yeah this is this, whoa I like <laughs> can you please go back under the rug because I can't deal with this but I couldn't put it under but
0: such a such a challenging time because you've almost you know you've started this awakening process as you've discovered yoga and you're treating your body with a lot of love and compassion now so you don't have those coping tools that you would have once gone to yeah. to push everything back down.
1: Yeah, and then we're in lockdown. Mm. Oh No, we were in lockdown. We went into lockdown after. Um, but, yeah, so I had all of that coming up. I was like, oh. Oh. and so I stopped sleeping. Oh, wow. So my sleep went to absolute rubbish. Um, and then I just kept working. And I was doing the training and then I went to Byron for a week and I just cried because it was. I stopped and I just cried. But the insomnia got so intense that I just was not sleeping. And then I got back from my trip in Byron and then went straight into lockdown from there. So then I was isolated to sit in my thoughts and to sit in it all. Um, And then I went out one day and decided that I would try and tumble again in a park in my little... You know, one hour that we're allowed outside. Mm. Um, and that was the last trauma for my shoulder. It was like, no. So mm. then I was in lockdown and had all of this my shoulder, I couldn't wait there. I couldn't use my arm properly. Needed to have surgery. Had all of these thoughts spiraling. I couldn't do any of the exercise to try and stop myself from feeling the spiraling. Mm-hmm. So I had to sit in it. Mm. Um, I was also, we also isolated, so it was ghost town. So it was like literally I live by myself. So it was sitting there going, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. This, I'm meant to be actually dealing with this. Yeah. Um, and I went 17 nights with no sleep in a row. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't imagine. Which was just, you know. Torture. Torture. Yeah, by day 17 I, I sat in the shower and I just was like, sat on the floor and just went. I can't do this anymore. No. I didn't know what the alternative was. <laughs> there was no, I didn't have an answer for it. But I was just like, I can't. Um, and then that was my moment of, I can't. And then a friend referred a therapist to me. Mm. And then I just went into deep, deep work. And had to sit in all the discomfort, sit in all of the story and be really really honest with myself and not just say what had happened but to really own how I felt in each of those moments and then notice the judgment that I had of myself in those moments for how I felt and how I thought Mm. and I had to get every single thing out and it was so intense and so hard and so powerful Mm that I was able to take part of my power back and I was able to take the power away from the things that had controlled me. Mm. So while I still have little inklings of those little addictive – I think they'll always be there in the background a little bit. Yeah. They don't control me. And I can notice them when they start to creep. Mm. And I'm I'm like, oh, you're there. Yeah oh you're there like so I have my uh, Cecil Cecil's the Cecil pot that sits behind me on the right no, that's left sorry I've <laughs> got my mirroring on from teaching um but it's the Cecil swirling pot that sits behind me and so I'm like oh I can feel you there mm. oh hi I can see I'm not good enough I'm not capable um you don't actually need to prove anything anymore that was then I needed you then, but this is now. I'm going to refocus and I'm going to be here. Mm. So Cecil, you just stay back in that corner. Mm. I'm acknowledging that you exist, Mm. but I'm not going to buy into it. Mm. So we're not going to go down that route. We're not going to go down the perfectionism. We're not going to go down the people-pleasing. Actually, we're going to have boundaries. And it's like, what do I actually want in this moment? And how do I want to be? Because this is the world that I live in. Mm. And how do I want to exist in it?
0: Mm. I love all... I love what you've said there and how honest you've been about the experience being that it's not linear. We don't, we don't do the work and get well and then we're done. It's not, you oh, don't no. wipe your hands clean, you know, like this is a, for anybody who's ever experienced anything, whether it's mental health, addiction, eating disorders, trauma of any kind, this will come in and out of your life. And it's like you just said then, acknowledging that, you know, the stories are there, but when they pop up rather than them taking over and running with it, you're able to sort of I just go, oh, okay, yep, here yep. comes that story again. Oh, oh, hi, nice to see you. Yep, not going to buy into that. Yeah. And, and Thanks off. for coming. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's exactly oh. the same with cravings and all sorts of things that can come up when we're in, re- when we're in recovery.
1: Absolutely. Like last week I got triggered at school. Mm. I was just like, ooh, and my nervous system went before my brain did. Mm. And so my nervous system went straight into fight and flight and was like, run. What and does I,
0: that look like for you now?
1: Well, that for me took me by surprise. Mm. It just because it was such a quick nervous system reaction mm. and already in that reaction's time, my rational brain switched off. Yeah. So I was like, I don't even know what's happening right now, mm. but I can't stop shaking. Um, and it took – and but I just – let it do its course and it took about 24 hours for it to settle down Wow! but I was aware of it so now it looks like this awareness so instead of running or trying to find something to stop it I just let it be Mm. and I sat with it and the next day I gave myself space to sit and meditate and then just journal and I had no end point so I let myself sit and then I la- allowed myself to sit in the silence, which started like white noise. Mm. And then when the sensation came up or the nervous system, I lent in and let it get bigger. Mm. And I let myself sit in it and go, what, is, what am I assuming right now? What are my opinions and what are my, what are my assumptions, my opinions and my judgments? What are my biases in this moment? Mm. What am I allowing to be my reality that's causing this? So then I sat in there and then I just journaled and I didn't give myself an endpoint. I just said I was going to journal mm. and I wrote, <laughs> I typed it after I journaled and then I typed it up the next day, but I wrote a 3000 word. Wow. Thing of just unpacking. And so this is, you know, after I've done so much work and still having those moments, but I can look at it and now I can acknowledge it and go, this is my unpacking process. Mm. And I can look at all of these untruths that are existing. I can look, See where I'm emotionally reasoning rather than looking at fact. I can see where I'm biased and where I'm only looking from a certain perspective and I can see how my past is affecting me right now. Mm. And then I can make a new choice. So I get to choose. Mm. Which is something that's really powerful for me right now is the I choose.
0: Yeah. It's there's the three things that have really come up strong for me here is that that you're taking your power back you're facing your fears and you've stopped running yeah amazing what a powerful journey to be able to come into that place of ownership now and not be ruled by your first reaction or first response
1: Mm. that's incredible i think there's a there's a big thing um and in yoga and meditation it's the response over reaction Mm. how to respond and just by getting a strong meditation practice doesn't even have to be you know a full course that you do but just having a meditation practice can delay your reaction by three seconds which
0: is actually a really long time isn't a long
1: time Mm. to actually go oh how am I going to choose to respond instead of just reacting of just re- the, 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 the choosing is huge
0: in recovery we talk a lot about the power of the pause oh. and it's that same moment isn't it yeah that moment between reaction and response so you've talked a lot about your own personal um, journey into therapy and what it's uncovered for you but you've also made the decision to become a psychotherapist Mm. Has it been your own experience and the power that you've taken back in your own journey that's led you now to go down this pathway? What's your calling there?
1: I've always been so intrigued by human beings um, and I think part of that was, you know, started with movement and doing my therapy and dance and all the rest of it um, and then moving into my secondary um, the te- sorry teaching at university and doing a bachelor of applied science in physical education and psychology, like I was interested in the mind and in the physical, but I was more on the physical side of things at that point. Um, so I was always really interested in it, but when I was doing, it, I didn't feel like I was ready to dive deeper into it. I didn't feel like I had enough experience to be able to. Who am I to be able to work with other people back then? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I've had a lot of now, like a lot of lived experience and I've also worked through so much of my own stuff and my own psychotherapy and then just doing the – and knowing how powerful it is Mm. and being wanting to offer that out as well. But I think a lot of it came from what were my initial catalyst that wanted me to get back into it. Um, after leaving it behind back in 2012 was doing the teacher trainings. Mm. So doing the teacher trainings is one of my most favourite things to do in the entire world. Mm. It lights me up to no end. Um, It feels like home. Mm -hmm. It comes from my heart when I teach and I get to create these beautiful connections with people i I can't even tell you the what it does to the me on my inside Mm. it's like one of the most special things that i get to do and i'm so honored to be able to do it i will never ever take it for granted um but in running them and facilitating them and co-facilitating them i just have really noticed how powerful relationship is Mm. with people and to make sure that people feel seen and held mm. and safe. And I know that I am a safe person. Mm. I know that I am someone who can hold space. I know that I am not judgmental. Like I know these aspects of myself. Like I can judge. We all have the judge qualities. Of course. But it's different when it comes to a real person and a soul that's sitting in front of you. Mm. Like I just – you could tell me the worst thing in the world and I would sit there and hold you in it. Like because I believe – like I believe with absolute uncertainty. That's all right. <laughs> with absolute certainty. With absolute certainty. <laughs> I did like two nones. Um I believe that everyone is innately good mm. and everyone has a good heart, but I believe that a lot of people have life experience – and trauma and ancestral stuff and generational just there's so much that impacts a human being Mm. um and being able to sit and hold space and help people find not fix people but give people the space and the safety to be able to unlock different aspects of their own consciousness to create a life that they want to live and to find a sense of human flourishing or unimodia, unimodia, is that how you say it? Um, But to be able to hold people in that is really powerful. Mm. And so I was noticing that in the yoga teacher training that I could hold good space Mm. and I know that I can, Mm. which is something really bizarre for me to even say out loud because I would have never owned that before I would have been like oh no I don't want to sound like a yeah but I know that I can hold good space and I know that I'm also safe and I know that I can be I know that I can tap into other people in a way of being able to go what does your what do you need Mm. who do you need me to be right now for you Mm. so in knowing that and holding that space I also was very aware that I didn't have all of the skills or the knowledge or the background in terms of, you know, scientific research and the philosophy. I don't have all of those backgrounds. So I didn't want to make more harm by not knowing. Mm. So in these teacher trainings, as you know, stuff comes up for people. It's unlocking it's unpacking and it's intense. It's like they're... Big situations Huge. and big stuff comes up for people. And I was – I didn't want to do harm. Mm. I didn't want to be doing harm by opening people up but not have given them the resources to be able to actually hold that. Yeah. So I know that whenever we had the teacher training, I would always say, if stuff comes up, I want you to go and see someone yeah. or fight. Like I would always say that um, – But I want to know for myself to make sure that I'm not doing any harm to anyone.
0: Mm.
1: So that was what kind of pushed me in towards doing initially uh, psychology. Mm. But then I decided that that wasn't my stream, that it was psychotherapy was more me. Mm. Um, But that's what's pushed me that way. Mm. Was the relationship with people and wanting to be able to hold space and be able to help people to find themselves, not to do it for them, but to be able to sit with them and make them feel seen Mm. and feel heard and to be able to have a voice and to know that they're supposed to be here, Mm. but for them to realise it themselves by me just being able to be able to hold them while they figure it out. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's what kind of pushed me towards doing that, to make sure that I do it in the best possible way
0: Mm. it always makes me so happy to hear when people who have had a life such as yours and all of this lived experience that they then go on to work in the space really warms my heart because I just think already your lived experience is so much so that you'd be able to help other people let alone you know the knowledge that you'll acquire and then adding the yoga into it and it's just you know Gifts will continue on from here. Natty, we are coming towards the end of our chat now. Mm-hmm. And I like to close out each episode asking the same question. And that question is What are three non negotiables that you implement in your life today that enable you to live happy, joyous, and free?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, my non-negotiables. Three, so definitely meditation.
0: Mm.
1: It's absolute non-negotiable.
0: What does meditation do for you?
1: Meditation gives me an opportunity to check in. Mm. It's for me to see where I'm at. It's a adi- It's a chance for me to come back to me, like the real me. Mm. The authentic, true me, and it gives me also an opportunity to pause, unpack all the stuff we've spoken about. Where are my fears? Where are my wants? What are my desires? Where are they coming from? What's the drive? Mm. How do I want to show up? Where do I need to make change? Where am I out of balance? Where am I out of alignment? Mm. So it's that pause in that moment to check in to. Go back to my truest nature. And then, following that, I always journal, which is also non negotiable. So, you know, then I get to organize my mind mm. rather than just having the thoughts that fluctuate through meditation. I can then, those things that start to come up, and I can journal on them and I can start to organize my thoughts and organize my mind and go, huh, okay, this is what I need to action. Mm. This is what's true. This is what's not true. All right, this is how I'm going to move into my day or what am I letting go of at night time? What am I releasing? How am I going to go to sleep tonight? Like, how do I want to be? Can you talk to me
0: a little bit more about what journaling looks like? For somebody who is maybe daunted by the idea of journaling, how would you suggest to get started?
1: Um journaling for me took a while for me to actually start doing because it was one of those things that I was like I'm not a writer I'm not Mm. this I'm not um and it does look different every day um depending on where I'm at and how I'm meeting myself sometimes it's just a word Mm. sometimes I'll just literally open my book and go a word sometimes it looks like just free writing like just whatever pops in my head no editing no spell check no, it doesn't even matter if the words don't make sense mm-hmm. in the cast like, they come out. Just write whatever until my pen stops. Other times I will open my journal and there'll be nothing in my head at all. And I literally will write nothing, 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 nothing. And then something will start popping in my head and then I'll start writing. Yeah. Um, other times there will be – I will have things that, I'm try- that are ruminating in my mind that I need to think. And before I go into my meditation I'll have that in mind. Not to focus on it in meditation but it's just this is what I need to unpack today and I'll do my meditation and afterwards I'll write that as a topic at the top and then start to just write about it mm. and just see what comes up. Yeah. Not trying to, it's, it's never a forceful thing. It's not.
0: It's just tapping into that stream of consciousness, you're right? are tapping
1: into the stream of consciousness and sometimes it's nothing. Mm. Like I have a book that my friend gave me and it's one thought per day. So sometimes that's it. I open the book and I write my one thought. And sometimes I have to really think about it. I'm like, what is my thought for the day? But then I go through my day and go, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was, that, that's something that I need to note down. Mm. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So we've got meditation. We've got journaling. Yeah. Lucky last.
1: Lucky last. Um, my other non-negotiable is to reach out to someone every single day.
0: Wow. Tell me more about that.
1: So that can often be – because my life is pretty full. <laughs> um, I, sometimes I can't always reach out to – or catch up with everyone. Mm. So I do make sure that I have social calendar um, because that's important to me. But I may, make sure that I voice note someone close to me mm. every day just to check in. Mm. And sometimes it's a couple of people I have um, my – you know how you have those – that real tight couple. Yeah. That you they get one like most days. <laughs> um, but just to check in and tell them how I am but to also check in with how they are. Mm. So I always check in with them because I want to know. Um, but it also – I hold myself accountable and go, I'm having a shit day today. Mm. I just need – I just, don't, don't need a reply. You don't even need to listen to this. Mm. I just need to be heard – even if I don't even know if you did hear it. like So it's yeah. actually starting to have real conversations, even though it might be in a voice note. Mm. It's still saying exactly how I'm feeling in that moment rather than ignoring it.
0: And you know what? It's also, um, in a way, making sure that you don't slip back into wearing a mask again because yeah. we can all do that so quickly, right? But if if you're almost having this like auth authenticity check in each day or like I'm going to hold myself accountable just to two people to 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 say what's really going on and you almost make that a habit then you know you won't slip back into that default of
1: everything's fine no because you get this like they'll reply back and be like you've got this (laughs) or what do you need do you need me to come over do you need or they'll be like yeah that's justified like I totally know where you're coming from. Mm. I mean, you know, it took me a while to get to that point where I had those people that I knew wouldn't judge anything I said. Yeah. Um but when I found those people and actually started having real conversations. It doesn't take long to find them because you're like, mm. Oh no, most people in their hearts mm. i just wanna hear like wanna just have connection
0: exactly right and you do you find your tribe you know the the more you check in and get true to yourself i think you do you find the people that are on the same page as you and yeah yeah really really amazing stuff all three of those are definitely things that i would pack into my own recovery toolkit
1: yeah they're pretty they're pretty great
0: absolutely oh nat Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank you enough for coming onto the show today. I have so much gratitude for you and everything you do. We say here on the show that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. And I know that your story is going to absolutely move people and help people. And I'm so excited to see what's in store for you in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the show.